0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb, and my co-host, Joe McCormick, is away from the virtual workspace today. So it's just me, but I'm going to be joined by vertebrate zoologist and author, Bill Shutt. So Bill is the author of two previous nonfiction books. There's Dark Banquet, Blood, and the Curious Lives of Blood-Feeding Creatures. I, I know for a fact that I've, I've mentioned that book on the show before. Uh, he also wrote Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History. His latest book is Pump, A Natural History of the Heart, which is out right now in hardback as an e-book and also as an audio book. Now, we're mostly going to be talking about the weird and wonderful evolution of the heart as well as humanity's attempt to understand it through history. But as always, I have to stress that the book itself, Pump, uh, in this case, goes into far greater detail and includes so many more wonderful examples. Uh, uh, Case in point, we don't get into the horseshoe crab at all or blood transfusions, but there are great chapters in the book on these topics. It's a great read, and I highly recommend it. So let's go ahead and jump into the interview, and hey, towards the end, we're actually going to chat a little bit about horror movies. I'm not going to spoil which one, but it just happens to be a film that I watched for the first time in recent weeks, so uh, this was this was quite enjoyable. Welcome to the show, Bill. Would you mind introducing yourself to our audience?
0: Hi, yeah, nice to be here. My name is Bill Shutt, and I am a vertebrate zoologist and recently took an early retirement from... Long Island University, where I taught for over twenty years. I taught anatomy and physiology, taught courses in evolution and dinosaurs, and um, my research interests for the past thirty years or so have centered around bats. and uh, And within the fourteen hundred plus species of bats, I specialized on the three vampire bats, and um, so that sort of led to my first book after writing a bunch of scientific papers, and and that was. Dark Banquet, Blood and the Curious Lives of Blood Feeding Creatures. Uh, And I followed that up with a book on cannibalism called Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History. And so here I am now having written uh, a book on the heart, uh, and that is Pump, uh, A Natural History of the Heart.
1: Uh, When did you know this was going to be your next book? Did it just seem like the the next logical step, or uh, was there something in particular?
0: Yeah, it really didn't seem like the first, uh, the, the next logical step because of the topics that I had covered initially're were, we were more macabre and and um, you know you go from vampirism to cannibalism into the heart and that's sort of there's sort of a jump there and um, and really what I I was lucky enough with the first two books to sort of find a niche between the sensationalized, sort of garbagey stuff on the on one side, and on the other side, is sort of academic material that nobody would read unless you were studying th- those topics. And so, I so, so I, I I sort of fit myself into into the middle of that. And I've always been interested in taking complex or misunderstood concepts and demystifying them, putting a zoological slant on them, making it humorous, entertaining, and, and not using a whole lot of jargon. And, and then going off on sort of side trips where I got to discuss what I thought uh, what, and what I believe are uh, important topics, whether it's history or, 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 or biology. So when I was starting to think about what I wanted to write for, for my third nonfiction book, um, my editors, at Algonquin, and my agent all suggested that I possibly look for something a bit more mainstream. And they gave me a short list. And, and one of the things that I did some preliminary research on was the heart. And I got to say, initially, I thought, oh, this has got to have been done before, because there there's uh, hundreds of books, this topic is, you know, so widespread and popular. And I, and I was really surprised to find that, that, that there was this space for the type of book that I wanted to write, where you move through the animal kingdom, you tell these interesting stories based on animals, then you move into humans, go into myths and the history of of a particular topic, um, and then um, sort of grab interesting stories about medicine, past, uh, present, and future. And so I was really surprised, to tell you the truth, that there was so much there, and a lot of it was really strange enough to, to satisfy that part of me, and I've always been into... You um, know, horror movies and, and, and books. And so I always had this kind of like weird bent as far as that stuff went. So um, once I figured out that, that, that there was enough interesting material there to satisfy myself and, and, and I think my readers, that then it was a done deal that I was going to work
1: on the heart. So the heart, especially from the human perspective, takes on all of this additional symbolic weight, and you, do, you discuss this in the book. Uh, but, but stripping away all of that, what, what is a heart, and why did it become necessary uh, from an evolutionary perspective?
0: Good question. Let, let me lead off by saying that there are all sorts of different things that you might call a heart, where some people might not consider it to be a heart because it doesn't have a specific lining, that sort of thing. Um, but a heart is really a, a, a pump a muscular pump, so we're talking about uh, involuntary muscle, so it's not under your conscious control, and when it contracts, it sends a fluid, either blood or, if you're an insect, uh, hemolymph, around the body, and, the, and, and what it's doing, and this, there's variation here as well, is it's carrying oxygen um, to the body, and it's carrying carbon dioxide to a place where it can be eliminated by the same token it's carrying nutrients that are either absorbed uh, through the digestive tract wall to the body and getting rid of waste products that are produced by the body so it's a way to move that fluid around and to move around those substances now that is not a problem if you're really really tiny you don't need to have a special circulatory system because those those materials that I just mentioned, that they just diffuse in and out of your cell. If you're a single celled organism, or if you're really flat like a tapeworm, then, then that material just moves from a high concentration to a low concentration. So just for as an example, um, uh, if a, if a single celled organism is, is surrounded by water and that water has got more oxygen in it than is inside that cell, then the oxygen is gonna go from high concentration outside the cell, right through the cell membrane, into the cell itself. And and that's how that material moves. It just goes high concentration to low. That works great if you're tiny or or flat. And it doesn't work at all if you have any kind of size because it's very difficult and, and, and diffusion doesn't work efficiently. If you're talking about an organism with made of millions of cells and thousands of cell layers thick, diffusion just doesn't work or it works, but it works really slowly. So millions and millions of years ago, probably half a billion years ago, in order for creatures to get larger, they had to evolve systems that allowed those materials to move in and out and within the body that had to take place. And so what evolved were these systems of tubes and pumps to to help uh, distribute that liquid, which became the carrier for oxygen and nutrients and waste and, and carbon dioxide. Um, so, so it, it it was, in a sense, organisms couldn't evolve to be as complex as they are now um, if they didn't have this transportation system uh, evolving inside them.
1: Uh, I have to say, I really loved the evolutionary journey you take us on in the book. Um, I, I think back to your your book on um, on, on on vampires and blood drinking uh, and, and the evolution of bats, and in in a way, it's like we kind of think. We already feel like the the destination there is weird enough, so we expect the journey to be weird. Um, And with the heart, it's easy to take it for granted, but it's such a weird and wonderful uh, evolutionary journey you describe. Oh, thank you very much. Now, I, I love how you explain that we have to get away from the human-centric view that the human heart is, is like the pinnacle of design or anything of that nature, you know, the, the, the ultimate in, um, in, in, in evolution. Uh, you describe a number of, of wonderful, um, and, and I guess from the human perspective, strange hearts in the book. If you were to play favorites, uh, which non-human heart in the book impressed you the most?
0: Um, probably the blue whale heart. For for reasons that that might not be readily apparent, and and so in the prologue in the first chapter, I detail the um, the adventure that my friends up at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto took when when unfortunately nine blue whales died on the ice up in in Canada, and and usually these whales sink, and uh, and three of them didn't. They washed ashore the on, on in these remote spots, and 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 these guys went in there, and uh, and and recovered one of the hearts. And the reason they did this is because you know they were mammal and they kept hearing this question from folks about what's the largest heart in the world well blue whale heart how big is it they really didn't know well it's probably as big as an suv but so 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 when they got the chance to go get one they they did it and it it took five years we're talking heavy construction equipment to get to move these things around they were four of them inside the whale pushing the heart out (laughs) through the ribs and when the thing was when they, when they finally got it on the ground it, it, it when I looked at pictures of it it reminds me of like a 400 hundred pound soup dumpling it did not <laughs> look like a heart that you might get at a you know at a butcher's uh, for, for example um and so there were so many strange things about the heart and and one of them was was this shape that it took uh, because it uh, we, we think that it's able to collapse under high pressure when they dive so we, they don't know but this is what they hypothesize the other thing is is that it was a lot smaller than they thought it was going to be. Now, this is the largest heart in the world. Yes, it is. But maybe it's the size of a golf cart rather than an SUV. And and that question became really interesting to them and, and to myself. And And what it boils down to is if you were to look at the heart of a hummingbird, for example, and this is an animal that can uh, uh, can can beat its wings 800 times a minute. To do that, it takes muscle you know, it takes nutrients, it takes oxygen, produces carbon dioxide. So so there's got to be this massive amount of blood flowing into those flight muscles in order to do that. Um. You, you, one thing you can do is have your heart beat as uh, really fast and, and a hummingbird heart can beat 1200 beats per minute and that is probably about the physical limit that a heart can beat. So we're talking about fill, empty, relax, and then do this whole thing taking place again. 1200 times a minute is ridiculous. So, so as, a, as a mechanical device, it's probably about topped out right there. I don't know if you can go any, and uh, beat any quicker than that. The only other way to get more blood to these muscles, these wing muscles, is to have a larger heart. So because of that, um, hummingbirds have a heart that's four or five times larger relative to their body size than a blue whale heart, whose heart maybe beats 10, 15 times a minute. And it doesn't have that high metabolic demand that the little guys like hummingbirds and shrews might have. That, that to me was, you know, that was probably the most interesting, but uh, you know, there was this long list that I had to sort of pick through before <laughs> I figured out how to answer that one. But, uh, but blue whale hearts, and, and they are on display. This heart has uh, gone through this plastination process. If you've ever seen the bodies exhibit, it's like these guys with their cadavers who are posed in strange positions, dribb- dribbling the basketball with no skin, which is, you know, try to avoid that. Um, so, so this these, this plastinated blue whale heart is now back on display at the rom and they've got a um uh, uh, they have a uh, an interesting exhibit on the whales and they so they pulled this thing back out of storage and it's just
1: fantastic awesome i i'd love to see that someday uh and there's of course an illustration in the book of you setting beside it uh, I, I like that Now, uh, on a a similar note, uh, you know, thinking back to, you know, getting away from the human-centric view of of the heart, uh, you stress that we also have to realize that the organ systems in the body don't function like separate chapters in a textbook. And uh, I found this really eye-opening, you know, because I think— to my own self, and I'm thinking, oh, well, that's exactly how I think about it. I think of those clear overlays in anatomy books, and I'm, I think, okay, this system, this system, um, and I fall into that trap of thinking about my own body that way. Uh, can, you, can you get into this a little bit? Because I found this a rather insightful part of the book.
0: Sure. Uh, as I might have mentioned, I, I taught anatomy and physiology for for about two decades, and 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 one of the things that I stressed to my students: this is an extremely complex uh, uh, course, two semester course that I taught, with a lot of difficult concepts, and and I think that the that that there you, you people fall into this trap, especially students, of thinking that okay, I'm taking an exam, I'm studying um, circulatory system, and mm-hmm. and now I'm going to take an exam, and then I, I can forget that stuff. Before I get out to my car after the exam is over. And, and that's just not the case with, uh, w- w- when you talk about anatomy. So, for example, in my mind, there's no way to separate the, the circulatory system from the respiratory system. Because if you're going to begin, you know, we talked about the fact that one of the things that the hearts and circulatory systems do is this circulate blood that carries oxygen. Well, how do you get that oxygen? That's the role of the respiratory system. And then at a microscopic level, the circulatory system and the respiratory system come into contact. And there's this transfer of either carbon dioxide uh, from the circulatory system to the respiratory system or oxygen from the respiratory system to the circulatory system. And then we breathe out uh, and and the whole thing starts again. So, so I always stress the fact that you can't, that, that you really can't understand one, Uh, without putting it into into the context of of the other and and then you go into things like well how do how do these muscles contract well that's tied into the nervous system as well my students would laugh at me because this is something that i've just stressed over and over again that they have to think of of this as something other than uh chapters in a book
1: i i love that um uh, like I say, it, 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 I, I feel like even though I I, I don't have uh, you know this kind of a uh, anatomy background, I still flash back to those anatomy books from like high school and whatnot, uh, and and think of myself as divided that way. Now, in the book, you also get into. Um, the history of humanity's understanding of the heart, and uh, I re- and you stress this in the book, and I realize our, our understanding of this is imperfect. Um, but can you talk about what the ancient Egyptians seem to understand about the actual functionality of the heart and heart-related pathologies?
0: Yeah, well, well, the ancient Egyptians, and so we're talking, say, from from what I have researched, something like fifteen hundred and fifty BCE. So that would be the Egyptian book of the heart, which is written on papyrus in and hieroglyphs. And, and it appears to some translators that the Egyptians knew quite a bit about heart attacks and aneurysms. And you've got to be careful there because these translations from papyrus... Um, to, to English or to whatever language you you might be using, you've got to be careful because the, it's it's not precise. They had a different way of thinking back then, and their uh, and and our translations of ancient works. You always have to sort of be careful about what you're um, about what about what you're stating as a, as a fact. What we do, we we are more sure that the Egyptian physicians believed that the heart was was the center of of things like emotion or what we would call the soul and then on a on a physiological level and this is this got picked up by the greeks that 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 there were really two circulatory systems that venous blood was completely different than arterial blood which was actually air and so um, so it was initially thought by these guys that, and, and then passed on to the, to the, to the Greeks, and, the, and then the Romans who disproved the air part, um, that, that the venous blood derived from the liver, uh, and, and some of it seeped across into the, uh, into the left side, uh, and that mixed with air, and there was this magical material uh, called pneuma in, in the air, and, and, and so they got a lot wrong. Um, not, that's not to sort of mock them because they were working with, uh, you know, zero instrumentation, the things that we take for granted nowadays. Um, but unfortunately, that got picked up by the, uh, the, the idea of cardiocentrism and, and, and also their, their ideas about, um, about the circulatory system were picked up by the, uh, by the Greeks because Egyptian medicine, uh, that, that type of information was held in high esteem by, by the Greeks. Uh, from there, Hippocrates and Aristotle wrote about about the heart and the circulatory system. They stayed with this sort of cardiocentric view that um, uh, that that the, that the heart was the center of things like the, like the mind and intellect, and they really thought of it the way we now think of the nervous system. Hmm. Um, so, at the same time, now artists are jumping into play and they're writing, and uh, it's poetry, and 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 there are. There's all sorts of uh, and plays and 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 this idea that the heart is the seat of emotion became entrenched with artists and it's still there um, and and then passed on to the Romans, you know, and that's when things take a downturn because of uh, because of somebody who must have been brilliant at the time, Galen, but uh, but there was, that was problematic as as we might talk about in a bit.
1: Yeah, my my next question concerns that because because Galen of course is always this important figure that that we have to bring up when we discuss uh, uh, anatomical history and the advancement of anatomical knowledge. Uh but as you discussed in the in the book in many ways you put western medicine back um 1500 years. Tell us about this. Yeah,
0: uh so so Galen was a Roman surgeon and uh, and he got to travel to um to to to, to Egypt and, and picked up methodology um, and then um, worked in the gladiatorial school as a physician and, and began to study anatomy, but there was a, uh, it, it was, it was outlawed to, to actually work on human cadavers. So a lot of what he interpreted about the human body came through dissections of things like apes or dogs or pigs. And, and he wrote a lot and, and, and some of the material, the three million words that were eventually recovered, may have been written by his followers years later, maybe even after Galen died. But the thing is that he, um, he got a lot wrong. So this was all taking place in the second century CE. And um, after Rome fell, hundreds of years later, Galen's work was not was not initially translated into Latin, which was the, 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 the language of sciences back, back then. And so it, it sat around untranslated and, and was uh, not translated until the early Middle Ages. And it was translated by Christians. They were Syrians. And so when they translated Galen's work, they did it into Arabic and they put their Christian slant on that translation. Now that work that had been translated into arabic was eventually translated into latin and it reflected that christian slant that the syrian translators had put on it and and the problem was is that that looked great to the leaders of the church and 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 they you know the, so we're talking about sort of the european church and the western church and so they looked at it and said well this material is divinely inspired and so it it became in a sense uh, the 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 rule of law that that you had to follow in a lockstep fashion galen's teachings and so for 1500 years it was pretty much verboten to do research and 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 so um, so medicine stagnated uh, and that became really, and that was really problematic because so much of what uh, of what was practice was wrong. This whole idea of the four humors—you have to bleed people to balance the these four substances. Uh, one of them didn't exist, um, so that was a real that that was really troublesome. And you and that continued in some ways right up until the early twentieth century. They're still bleeding people, uh, so so that was um, that that was a bit problematic.
1: Yeah, and like you point out in the book, speaking of the humors, that, you know, we still talk about people being melancholy, so we still have the the linguistic legacy of of that system.
0: Or sanguine.
1: Ah, yes. Now, skipping ahead more into the, the present and, and looking ahead to the future, you describe some amazing advances in medical science in the book. Uh, you, get into, uh, well, you get into the history of blood transfusion up to where we are now. You, do, you discuss um, heart transplants. How far are we away from um, what we, I guess, sometimes roughly refer to as, as lab-grown hearts?
0: Um, yeah, this, to me, this was one of the most amazing things because I got to go to Harvard and, and meet with a a researcher by the name of Harold Ott. And he is, he is aware of the fact that, that there's a real problem with, uh, with, with people on waiting lists for organs and, Mm -hmm. and, 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 thousands of people die every year, not necessarily waiting for hearts, but waiting for livers, waiting for kidneys. Um, and, and, and so. Um, what he's tried to do is take a very different approach. The reasons why the people wind up dying on a waiting list is because you have to have the right type tissue type, blood type. You've got to be able to move this thing maybe across the country, um, keep it refrigerated. And, and so that's oftentimes a crapshoot, whether that's going to work out for somebody. So what he's done is, and, and, and this is preliminary, he's taken cadaver hearts and put them through a, a in a sense, a detergent rinse. And that detergent doesn't wash away dirt. It washes away the, the cells in the heart that your body would reject were you to take a, a, that heart and, and, and transplant it. So we're talking about the the, the muscle fibers and, and other associated uh, cells. And so what's left is this ghost white framework of the heart. So now you've got, Something that, that, that looks like a heart, but really has no other cells besides the connective tissue cells, which your body is not going to reject. Okay. So now what he's done is, and this science does exist, he will take a a sample, a biopsy, or a sample of skin cells from the person who's going to receive the heart, the recipient. And, and, and so, so we're not talking about something deep in the body. This, is, this just comes right from your skin. These, are, these cells are called fibroblasts. The science now exists to convert those fibroblasts into stem cells. And stem cells, depending on how the body stimulates them, can be converted into any type of cell. Now, so what they are able to do now still uh, is to take these stem cells and stimulate them to become muscle cells. And so his idea now is to take these muscle cells and embed them, seed them, as it were, onto this heart. Uh, the, the, to this framework and grow a heart that is a match for this recipient. And, and, and it won't rege- the, the recipient won't reject that, that heart. The, the immune system won't, uh, won't find it to be foreign cells or foreign tissue because it actually is derived from the cells of that recipient. So when I asked him, how long do you think this is going to take until it becomes commonplace? He said 10 years. Hmm. That's his hope. So I said, well, so, so how does that work? He says, well, somebody comes in with a heart problem. They, they need a heart transplant. You take a sample from them. You do what I just described about how you change them into stem cells. You take a cadaver heart, you embed it, and then you do this transplant, and the person is, you know, is up and walking in a day or two.
1: Oh, wow. Well, it's really exciting to imagine uh getting to that point and uh and like I say in the book you yeah, there's this this wonderful evolutionary journey you take us on I, I love the the journey through our our attempts to scientifically and i guess culturally understand what the heart is uh now you I have to ask we're getting since we're getting into october here uh your previous books have dealt with vampires and cannibals um now we do it dealing with the heart and blood, and I'm to understand you're working on a book about teeth, so I have to ask, uh, what, what, what is your favorite movie monster?
0: Uh, without a doubt, it is the original, so the 1951 version of The Thing. Ah. Yeah, uh, with um, James Arnest, the, who's in Gunsmoke in the 1960s and I guess early 70s, playing this uh, walking carrot. Uh, who lands, crash lands in in the Arctic and um, how it's recovered by this research group and what happens when, when it gets thawed out by mistake. I, I just think it has, the movie has everything to me. Um, its it, It's got a great mood. It has wonderful, it has a wonderful soundtrack. It's one of the first films ever that has overlapping dialogue. So when you hear these, mm-hmm. these soldiers and these scientists in conversation, they're not waiting for someone else to stop talking before they, before they talk. So this all has to do with the director, Howard Hawks. And it's just to me is, is a perfect uh, film and and stands up um, even today. A lot of people are in love with the John Carpenter, the 1982 movie, which is a gore fest, Mm -hmm. good movie, you know, Um, but, um, but I, I don't think that it, that it, uh, I don't think it's 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 quite as as a, much of a classic as as uh, as the original.
1: I have to agree with you about the the the, the original holding up so well. I happen to have just watched it for the first time uh, a week or two ago, and um, yeah, the I, I totally agree on the dialogue. It's 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 snappy and 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 real, and so many of the sequence. I feel like there there were those promo images of James Arness as the monster, and especially for people who came up. Uh, you know, post-Carpenter, we kind of looked at that and we're like, oh, I don't, I don't want to, maybe don't want to see a movie with this old-fashioned looking monster. But the way it's shot in the film is so impressive. And you have that that really frightening sequence with the fire. Uh, I, I, I think it totally holds up. Or
0: well, when that door opens and it's standing on the other side of the door and it just like slams the door frame.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, oh, yeah. Um, the, the whole, well, I think it's very, it's really funny. Um, mm-hmm. and and it, it affected me so much that when I started to write fiction and I've written three novels uh, I based the characters in in those novels on the characters in in the thing in, in especially the original but but certainly some of the characters in the uh, you know when I was looking for a, for a name of a character I'd, I'd go looking in, uh, in in those movies um, especially McCready who's who's mm-hmm. the, the the hero in in, in these three... 1940 zero Techno Thrillers that I that I wrote with my co author Finch. Uh,
1: I have to ask, how old were you when you first saw the thing from another world? Young. Um, oh. My parents, you know, back
0: back when I was a little kid, we went to the to the drive in every week. Now that that movie is older than I am. It's it's ac- it's actually seventy years old this year, and so I probably was five six years mm-hmm. old, and uh, it, you know. I, that type of of um, of film, you know, I've always been a huge film buff, and when I'm writing my my novels, I'm thinking about these big cinematic scenes, and um, and and I think that when when I write nonfiction, I'm able to go back. So I opened up the you know cannibalism with with the story of uh, of Ed Gein, who was a uh, who was who was really the the the, the cannibal murderer that that the, the that the um, that the Bates character in, in, in Psycho was based on, mm-hmm. you know, Alfred Hitchcock just took this uh, real event and, and got rid of the, the cannibalism aspect uh, and, and kept the, the, the mother obsession aspect of it. And so, uh, so that to me, is, that's another perfect film. There, there, there are, there's about five of them, Psycho being one and, uh, and, and the original thing being another.
1: In the original, the the thing, uh, it it also is more of a blood drinker. It is more of a, a vampire. Do you think that had any um, any impact on your eventual study of uh, vampire bats? Uh,
0: uh, you know, I wish I could say because that sounds so cool that connection. But <laughs> you know, I'd always, I, but I'd been into in, into uh, vampire movies as well. You know, i I'd been into the original Dracula and and then the Hammer versions that came out uh, in in the in the sixties and seventies. So so I guess I'd always been intrigued by by blood feeding but when when I started the study bats that was my first semester as a PhD student at Cornell um I'd always been into strange animals and 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 I'd always kept a lot of animals as pets when I was a kid I had a monkey that's how different (laughs) things were back then every snake every type of lizard whatever whatever you could could find in a pet shop or collect under a rock or drag out of a, a log um, so so I'd always been into sort of offbeat type creatures. And, and so when I started to work on bats, it probably took me about five minutes to decide that within these 1400 species that I wanted to work on the three vampires. And I just lucked out because in the early 1990s, Ninety-nine percent of what was known in the literature about vampire bats was known about the common vampire bat, and the other two were open books. So that allowed me to go in and do research on these uh, because, and I was really lucky because a lot of—not I wouldn't say a lot—a number of really important, um, influential bat biologists took me aside and said, "You know, Bill, a vampire bat is a vampire bat is a vampire bat. You're not going to see differences," and and I was. Fresh out of classes, thinking that doesn't that doesn't make sense? Because if you have two animals that do the same thing and they live in the same place, then 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 either uh, one of them is going to adapt a different behavior, or it's going to migrate, or it's going to go extinct. And so mm-hmm. when. So so this 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 little biologist, uh, Arthur the Museum of Natural History, which I've been lucky enough to be there since the the early 1990s as well, took me aside and said, Kate, you got something. So shut up now and go do it. (laughs) Um, And from there, I was able to look at all these differences that were clearly apparent once we started looking at them. And just to sort of put a shout out there. Uh, it's not that people didn't know about it, because when I went down to places like Trinidad, they, they knew from the start that there were these huge differences. One of them fed on birds. The other one is on the ground and feeding mm-hmm. on cows and, and pigs. Um, and they knew about it. They just weren't publishing. And so I made it a point to, to bring these guys on as co-authors and bring them up and make sure that they came to conferences and, and got the due that I thought they deserved.
1: Uh, bringing it back to pump for a second, I also love the, the bit where you get into the, the bats that hibernate uh, in, the, in the snow.
0: Yeah, um, not a whole lot is known about them, except that there's a species of bat that lives in Japan that, uh, that, that evidently hibernates uh, in, in, uh, in, in snow. And, and, and so the researchers originally thought, well, this, this, these guys and polar bears are the only, the only mammals that do that. Uh, and so what, since then, since this work was started, they figured out that polar bears might not really be card carrying hibernators because they wake up often during, in the, in the winter. Um, and so it's not known if these bats uh, are, uh, if, if these bats wake up in the middle of, uh, of the winter or not, but they make this little, they, with their body heat, they carve this little cone in the snow and then the snow covers them and you don't find them until, uh, until the spring when it's either either somebody that digs them up by mistake or, 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 it thaws out and you know, like they're cold, they're laying there for a while until they can start to crank some, some blood moving through them and then they fly off. But yeah, that was just one of, uh, I don't know, <laughs> dozens of, of really interesting stories that, I, that I learned about because I, I, the, the learning curve was steep which made it that much more interesting. You know, I don't go into these things as sort of experts on on the heart, for example, uh, or or cannibalism, thankfully.
1: <laughs> of course, the bats also remind me of the thing from another world, uh, you know, the organism uh, suspended in the ice, which I, I guess drives home, no matter how weird a, an idea is that we dream up about an alien creature, like th- there's something in the natural world that is already as weird or weirder, right?
0: Oh yeah, no doubt. And and that's, you know, I try to bring that out in the book as well.
1: And, and then the,
0: the, the, the fun thing is to try to tie that into modern medicine. So you have, uh, you know, you know, you have an aquarium fish, the zebrafish, which everybody's seen this little mm-hmm. thing, stripes, the horizontal stripes. Turns out that if you snip off 20% of its heart, the, the heart not only grows back, but it's completely functional. Now, if you were to do that, you know, we don't really do that. <laughs> Somewhere gladiatorial combat, you know, a lot of people are upset about that. But th- th- to be serious, if if you have a, a, a part of your heart is damaged because the blood flow has been cut off to it, and it, and, and, it, and it and in a sense that tissue dies. When it grows back, it's scar tissue. It's not contractile, good mm-hmm. functioning muscle tissue. Uh, that's not the case with the zebrafish. So how do we take that? W- what does the zebrafish have going for it that enables it to completely repair its heart after tr- being traumatically? Uh, uh, injured. And, and how do you translate that into, um, into curing uh, a, a sick heart that is undergoing a heart attack or multiple heart attacks? And there was a list of those that, that I ran into. So that was kind of fun as
1: well. Well, Bill, thanks for taking time out of your day to chat with us about the book. Well, it was really good to be here,
0: especially to talk about the thing. That's a, that's a new one for me. I, I, that, that one I haven't spoken to or been interviewed about. So it was a real pleasure to, to meet you and, and talk with you, Robert.
1: All right. Thanks again to Bill Shutt for chatting with me. You can check him out online at billshut.com. That's B-I-L-L-S-C-H-U-T-T dot com. Uh, that website contains links to his social media accounts as well. The website features information about his three nonfiction books, that's Dark Banquet, Cannibalism, and now Pump, as well as his three fiction books co-written with J.R. Finch. That's Hell's Gate, The Himalayan Codex, and The Darwin Strain. I have not read these but, uh, y- uh, yet, but now I'm super interested to check them out after, after chatting with Bill. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, well, you can find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, we give you our core science episodes. On Mondays, we do Lister Mail. On Wednesdays, we do an Artifact Short Form episode. On Fridays, we do a little Weird House Cinema. Uh, you know what that is. That's our chance to uh, kick back and discuss a weird film. And yes, as luck would have it, we very recently discussed The Thing from Another World on the show. So, hey, especially after uh, this chat with Bill, uh, go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. Uh, again, wonderful film. Oh, and then on the, on the weekends, we do a little rerun that's a vault episode thanks as always to seth nicholas johnson for uh, producing the show and recording us here and if you would like to email us as always you can do so at contact at stuff to stuff
0: to blow your mind is a production of iheart radio for more podcasts from iheart radio visit the iheart radio app Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.